You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start the show, how does he offer a free beer sound to you? The kind people at Beer52 are offering a free case of eight craft beers sourced and created from the best breweries on the planet. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £5.95 postage fee. Each case is delivered directly to your doorstep so there's no need to leave the house. Go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom for that deal. Anyway, on with the show. There might not have been that much cricket played in the test but there's still plenty to talk about from the England-Pakistan series, the Bob Willis Trophy and more. With me today to go through all that is the features editor of Wisdom.com, Taha Hashim, the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker, and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. It kind of sums up the test that the biggest talking points towards the end of it were around bad, light and flexible start times. We lost a lot of overs of cricket in the test. I actually can't remember the last time we lost this many overs. And I guess the frustration online stemmed from people thinking that we could have got more overs in than we actually got in. Joe, do you think anything should have been done differently? Do you think cricket should explore having flexible start times? Um, it wasn't right at the Aegeus Bowl, certainly. It feels like whatever the value is that it has to get sufficient, so so dark that the players come off, it just feels that that is, is uh, not uh, lenient enough as it stands. Uh, I wasn't at Southampton, but and obviously the TV makes it look a bit brighter than it is, but people who were there seem to think that play should have been possible. The, the depressing thing with this debate is you get a double whammy because it's frustrating at the time because the players come off and you want to watch cricket. It also means that journalists like us sit around talking about bad light. And then, so not only do you have the inaccessibility of the game that's actually happening, and then you have the debate afterwards is about this. So it just needs to get fixed. And that is not simple. That is part of the problem. There's people who say there's a quick fix is, I think, are kind of missing the point slightly. The idea of switching to a pink ball if it gets too dark, I, I think that's problematic given the difference that the pink ball seems to to make to matches. Um, but I think, yeah, whatever the number currently is for how dark it has to get for players to come off, I think that needs to be more lenient. Uh, I think it's tough to say the umpires should just be more flexible because these umpires then get a slap on the wrist for not following the regulations. I think it's it's got to come from higher than that uh, and it sounds like the reports in the last couple of days it sounds like there is going to be action taken one thing in this series in particular and the West Indies series which I do think is ridiculous is is not allowing a 10.30 start time um, I don't know why that wasn't changed earlier I understand the reason for not having that in uh, unusual circumstances because fans might not get the message and then miss the first half of play that I can absolutely see that but when there are no fans there why we're not starting at 10.30 to make up overs is, is bizarre. Mm, on bad light, the one thing I've never understood is why umpires need to take a reading for every test. Why, why isn't there a standardised level of darkness at which point their players go off? I don't know. Maybe there's something to do with different conditions, different grounds. Um, so you're, you're uh, more pro the pink ball idea? Um, I, I am just from a, a spectator's point of view. I can totally imagine as a player, you don't want that... Um, uh, especially if you're batting and then suddenly the pink ball gets out and um, we know that the pink ball can be rather volatile. Um, but it would just be, it would just add another sort of element to the game. I think it would be really enjoyable. Just another, you know, the game could be drifting, you know, um, you know, suddenly you get the pink ball out and it's hooping around and it's just quite exciting to watch. But obviously <laughs> the players would probably not be too happy about that. Phil? 
Uh, I just think the the fuss around the, uh, the the pink bull's properties and how and how much more difficult it is to bat uh, under lights with the pink ball is one of the more overblown elements of modern cricket and one of the more uh, precious elements of modern cricket. Um, that they they professional cricketers p- play cricket to earn money and to entertain. Um, to have this scenario whereby you can be playing cricket under lights uh, in all kinds of different scenarios except for this one particular one where you started the game earlier against a red ball and so therefore there's there's this kind of blockage and you're not allowed then to change the ball if push were to come to shove later on in the day. And yet the following week you can be playing a legitimate day-night test match in white with a pink ball and everybody gets on with it and everybody recognises that this is modernity at work and this is test match cricket trying to adapt to the times. How you can have it one week and then not the not another week and how it can be acceptable one week but an unacceptable the following week, I, don't, I just don't understand that logic especially. And, and while it will be trickier and while the degree of movement, lateral movement, will be increased as has been, as has been shown with the onset of a pink ball under lights. It's not so dramatic that it makes a mockery of the game and, and, and uh, impinges on the integrity of the game to such an extent that you have to not play. To me, that, that logic is grounded in decades-long over-protection of, of our mollycoddle cricketers and uh, a game that is overly deferential anyway to those who play it often to the uh, to the detriment of those who watch it. And it's those who watch it that are far more important in the overall uh, kind of ecosystem of, of international cricket than those who play it. Um, Test cricket is desperate, and rightly so, desperate to uh, adapt and evolve and hold on to its place in the conversation in a cluttered modern sporting environment. Uh, how we can be so standoffish about the occasional introduction for half an hour or an hour or even an hour and a half at the back end of a day with a pink ball. Um, I find that I find that odd, an odd stance why, to take. Why and, yet not? It, and yet it is quite a popular one. But why not then just use a pink... If, there's, if you're playing in conditions where bad light is likely to be a factor, why not just play with a pink ball throughout the test? Take that, take that uh, potential unevenness out of the equation because... All it would take is a couple of massive batting collapses and you could end up... The perception is that a series has been made a mockery of because you've changed the ball. And perception is key here. You talk about fans. Fans will also take umbrage at... If it's a a crucial match in the Ashes, light's bad, pink ball comes in, five wickets go down and five overs. Fans aren't going to be happy with that either, or at least one set of fans aren't going to be happy with that. So I think it's not an aversion to the pink ball at all, but I do think there needs to be, even for perception... From a perception point of view, there needs to be uh, standards that are met by both sides. So why not have more pink ball tests? I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Well, well, firstly, I think it's inevitable that we will have more pink ball tests. Certainly um, TV companies who in- hold the key, I think, to a lot of these conversations. TV companies are more interested in day-night tests for obvious reasons. It's prime time viewing for when people get home from work and so on and so on. Um, I, I think there will there are always going to be good times to bowl and and average times to bowl and good times to bat and average times to bat in the course of a five-day test match. I think them's the breaks, frankly. Um, The the idea of having a pink ball from the start uh, has a degree of merit. I can see that. But I also don't think it's especially tricky to say, look, if if the red ball is 60 overs old when it reaches a certain light reading point at which it's agreed and standardised, as you say, to flip, from the red to the pink, then clearly the umpire will have a a ball that is 60 overs old, that is pink, in the box, ready to bring out to replace that 60 over over old red ball. Just as when a ball goes out of shape, you replace it with another red ball. So it's not beyond the wit of man to replace one ball with another ball of equivalent age. It's just a slightly different colour. But if the basis of that is that the pink ball is good enough to use in a test match, what, what is the reason for not using it for the entire test match in games where bad light might be an issue? Well, as I say, it does have a and degree... Just, and just avoid this argument. It, do, it does have a degree of merit, but it, it would also be probably quite an extreme response to, what is, to a problem that only really rears its head from time to time. The vast majority of games are comfortably completed within the, the allocated hours, 
uh, around the world, uh, and a red ball has been established as the right ball to use during day cricket for forever and a day. Um, but what we're talking about here is whether the game dares to be flexible and dares to think on its feet or whether it just accepts the eccentric, long-standing uh, customs and rituals that have, in some respects, bedeviled it for, for quite a long time, really. Um, I probably sound like a kind of, you know, an old man just kicking off and being reactionary about this thing. I haven't followed Twitter this weekend. I haven't paid any attention to it. I've kind of, I saw the, the long-term forecast and thought, all right, I might leave this one alone a little bit. Uh, but, but yeah, look, when you are, when you are faced with, I still saw the photos, I still saw the pictures, I still tuned in from time to time. When you're faced with something as extreme as what we've seen, you know, bright sunshine for two or three hours and no cricket being played and so on, and yet you still have to cut, cut the thing off at six o'clock, half past six, with top class 21st century floodlights there to go, you can understand why the punters and, crucially, uh, the uh, TV companies, they'll be saying, we need to adapt and we need to change. I, won- I wonder if, um, Joe, you said that when you've got fans back, it'd be quite hard to have a last-minute change to a 10.30 start rather than 11 start. I just wonder why why not just always start half an hour earlier um, in England too. I mean, bad light is, we'll debate how often it actually does affect it, but it's a frequent enough problem for having a half an hour earlier start would make quite a big difference thing over the course of a whole yeah. summer. I mean, as ever, it's a balancing act, isn't it? I guess the concern would be if you start half an hour earlier, then it's too much in favour of the bowlers at half 10. But then we come back to the point, well, fair enough, it can be in favour of the bowlers. Mm. Better that we get some cricket rather than yeah. going off early. Yeah, I mean, there's also the issue of whether you can shift a day's play to start half an hour early in mid-test match. I think that should be surmountable as well. You, sh- you should, when mm. you get your test ticket sent to you in the post, it should say potentially starting at 10.30, 11 scheduled time, potentially starting at 10.30, and then you can overcome that as well. But um, yeah, this summer it shouldn't even be an issue. For, for a number of years, test cricket in England started at half 10 and the game did not collapse in on itself. And it was to do with TV companies. Channel 4 wanted to start at half 10 because they needed to get Hollyoaks in by 6 o'clock. That was literally the case. Or maybe it was even half 5, I can't remember. But they started at half 10. Sky don't have to put Hollyoaks on. Sky Sports 2. <laughs> maybe it's on mix. Anyway, on to the actual cricket. Pakistan scored 236 in their first innings. Broad Anderson shared 7 for 116. Broad took a three-wicket haul for the seventh consecutive innings this summer. Uh, and Mohammad Rizwan scored a fine 72 for Pakistan ended up winning the Player of the Match award for it. Um, Joe, did, did Pakistan do well to get to 236, given how well England bowled and the general conditions? God, it feels like days ago. I'm trying to re- recall the... Um, yeah, I think they they did, actually. I think those conditions... There was a point where I thought, God, should, it, should Pakistan just lose their last couple of wickets here because you wouldn't have fancied as the England openers going out there at that point. Um, Rizwan bratted brilliantly. Uh, really impressive cricketer. I heard he did he miss a stumping yesterday. I didn't catch did, the little yeah. session, but other than that, I think he's kept brilliantly. Got a lot about him as a batsman. Um, yeah, I thought Pakistan negotiated those conditions pretty well, and actually were getting to a point where they could have put some proper pressure on England, were it not for three days of terrible weather. Mm. Um, Tar, how, how do you think Pakistan batted? Because two, three, six on the face of it, not much, but I. I think that was quite a good score. And in, if we had four days of cricket, that could have been a match-winning score. Well, with their bowling attack, I mean, that's you can you can definitely get away with those kind of scores, get to 240, 250, and they're right in the game um, with Abbas, Naseem, and, and, and Shaheen's come through. Um, I just want to make a special mention for, for my man, uh, Fawad Alam. Um, first test in 11 years. You can um, see why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so, yeah, he gets a duck, and then... I mean, I didn't check Twitter, but I imagine there was a lot about his stance. Um, yeah, well, just well, a don't bit. look at me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just a bit. I don't think you need to be on Twitter to, to have noted <laughs> okay, that yeah. I mean, some, something is, is yeah. amiss. I mean, not going to lie, I've been wondering for the last 10 years why a guy with a first-class average of 56 wasn't in the Pakistan team. It took me <laughs> one ball to find out why. Yeah. So it um, sounds a bit harsh, but... But also, I mean, it was it was interesting that, I mean, it, it looked like he was going get, to get back in the side, Um but uh, I was quite disappointed not to see uh, Shadab Khan play um, just because he batted quite well in the last test. But obviously the whole idea about picking him was that he was going to be the second leggy, but he didn't really bowl that much. But he gives off a really sort of Sam Curran vibe at number seven where 
he's like this young guy who you don't really know what he's going to be, but he can sort of contribute somehow. Um, and if he'd got to 50 in his last test, I think that would have been his third test half century in England uh, yeah. from three tests. He played he's, really well at, at Lords in the couple yeah, of years back. 21. Um, and yeah, so I thought it was uh, in a way a bit unfair that he, he didn't get You think they'll test, bring but, him back? Um, You'd think it's likely, wouldn't you? You know, for a four, a four ball duck for, for far with. 11 you know, years. Can just they, they can give him one more test. Away, <laughs> so harsh. That'd but, be but horrible. It seemed like a misstep before I'd, I'd seen the lad walk out. You know, as you say, <laughs> Shadow Khan's a proper... proper they're scared of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm really enjoying the length of Pakistan's tail. It's kind of yeah. old mm. school, isn't it? And then the fact that Yasir at eight has to slog because he knows that 9, 10, 11 just can't stick around for, for very long at all. Uh, it's also quite refreshing because England so often struggle to get rid of the tail. But in, in this series, they're like, well, actually, they shouldn't stick around. That is, it's a really interesting point, though. So since start, or, so Ben wrote a piece on the website for this. Uh, so it's either since the start of 2018 or 2019, England are the third best team in the world at getting out batsmen the first six wickets. But they're the worst team in the world for getting out the last four wickets. So it's a, actually quite a long-standing and quite a serious problem, I think. Like, that's it goes quite back dramatic. to our club podcast. Yeah, it doesn't it? <laughs> Can't get the last few wickets. Um, Phil, you were you were impressed by Zach Crawley on the final day? Mildly, yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't watching it that that closely or studiously. I'm I'm impressed by him generally. Yeah. Uh, I just think he's a, he's a really good young player, and I can totally understand why they've taken a punt on him. Um, now now. Joe Joe Denley's gone. I can see that Zach Crawley's the next weekly discussion point. Um, we, we we spoke. We'll get to Joe Denley later in the show. Don't we, worry. We, we spoke about him far too much yesterday afternoon in the office. Ben Gardner was in, um, making his points. And uh, look, I, I can I can understand why with a relatively uh, bare cupboard anyway. All right, Milan has it has a case to be made. For him, there's a case to be made for Gary Balance also up to a point. But I can understand why they've looked at this lad, thought there's something a bit special about him. He plays the quicks very, very well. I know his record, his first-class record is average, but there's plenty of good players who in their first 30-odd first-class games in county cricket don't pull up many trees. The hundreds that he has made are good hundreds. He made 100 against Pattinson, and side bottom, and I think it was side bottom. Can't, can't remember for sure, but he certainly made a hundred against Pattinson against Knotts. Um, he's renowned as a good player with the quicks, and you've seen it already. He played Rabada well in the winter, and he's he's played pretty well in the the the, the three test matches. Well, the two two test matches where he's made made a score. He's played well. Two of the three games this summer, he's played well. Um, it's not, it's not it's not about it's not about the numbers. It's about what they look at, and it's about what they are seeing in this in this player. Now, you know, it's it's natural and inevitable that people will queue up and look at the record and think, all right, well, how how's he how's he batting first drop for England? And if you do, if we do study the numbers and break the numbers down, then we can understand that perspective. And by a certain measure, he is fortunate to be in this position, but he's not there by accident. He's not there just because uh, Ed Smith's from Kent. He's there as a consequence of some serious, broadly scientific analysis, coupled with some, you know, some age-old cricketing smarts from some people who have been immersed in the game. Graham Thorpe is England's batting coach. Graham Thorpe has, a, has an opinion on this. Graham Thorpe would have been on a Lions tour with Zach Crawley. Graham Thorpe would have been watching his development for the last five years, not just since he came into the England team. Joe Root has a big say in who bats three for England, not least because he doesn't want to do it himself. Uh, Zach Crawley uh, has something about him. Um, Zach Crawley uh, sets up uh, like, a, like, a, like a proper player, I think. Um, you, you bounce him and he hooks you. You pitch it up and he drives you. You, you bowl you bowl tight lines and he plays it right under his eyes. He plays it late. Uh, you don't see that kind of natural fluency in the opening batsman. Uh, um, Crawley, of course, began as an opening batsman. And as I've said on this show before, I think he may end up supplanting one of Burns or Sibley in due course down the line. Now, it may well be a long time down the line. He may be in and out of that side. But as a 22-year-old, I think he's got a test, test future uh, and while we shouldn't look too far ahead, 
because it's unfashionable. Well, I'm sorry, but they are looking far ahead, and and I understand why because the jeopardy of English cricket is heightened enormously during an Ashes series, and he looks to me like he has the game, not necessarily the age or the experience, but the game to have a chance against the quicks in Australia in 18 months' time. And if it means that he's got to fail and then fail better and then fail better again for the next year and a half in order to be broadly ready for the Gabba in late November next year, then so be it. I'm do, comfortable with it. Joe, do you think it's possible for a player, for their game to be more suited to test cricket than first-class cricket, basically? Because um, Crawley has played the quicks well. I, I thought it was quite impressive how he played Yasser Shah uh, coming down the pitch to him in his first or second over and in his 70-odd against West Indies as well. I know it was Ross and Chase, but he, he batted more, he's more proactive against Chase than any of the other England batsmen. Do you, do you think that maybe Crawley is somebody whose game just actually suits playing against higher quality attacks better, if that makes sense? Well, I mean, we have, we've seen this before in, I mean, Vaughan and Triscothic are the obvious examples that, that Fletcher plucked out of county cricket with not much record to speak of, saw potential in them and they, and they, had better records in Test cricket than first class cricket comfortably, at least to start with. Just Gothic caught himself up a bit, but um, with Crawley as well, it's worth taking into account that the pitch at Canterbury uh, has been a bit better recently, but was terrible the, the year they got promoted. I think Daniel Beldrummond was averaging less than twenty. I mean, he's had a difficult few years, but he is a he's a decent batsman. Uh, it was really just who could take their wickets quickest. It was kind of one fifty playing one twenty at Canterbury, so it's not surprising Crawley's first class record is is not great. And actually, scoring runs on those pitches is is perhaps even more valuable than scoring big runs elsewhere against some some less strong attacks. So I think it's hard to say you're just a better player in Test cricket, but there are other factors to take into account with Crawley. The other thing with Crawley is if there were three or four county batsmen around who could bat three and were averaging 45 plus, then Crawley wouldn't have got the chance. But the fact is there aren't really, other than Balance, who's had plenty of chances, Milan potentially. Northeast might be the one that people would pick out and say, well, hang on, he's actually got some proper numbers behind him, which Crawley doesn't in the same way. Um, but whatever it is, there is obviously something about Northeast that they don't find hugely appealing. They didn't even put him in their, what, 85-man squad at the start of the summer. So he is obviously some, some way off. Uh, and as Phil says, there's lots of sound judges out there who think Crawley has uh, got a test future, not least Phil himself. So. Um, thank you for pretending that I'm a sound judge, Joe. Much appreciated. Um, the balance, the balance question. Look, he's made forty hundreds, the majority from five, admittedly, but he's made forty first class hundreds, and he averages, I think, forty six, forty seven. He made four hundreds in twenty two test matches, I think, top of my head. Uh, he can legitimately think. He should have played and could have played more test matches than that. But what we don't know, and it's worth pointing out on balance as well, he was Joe Root's housemate for three years. They're good, they're good friends, him and, him and Joe Root. Uh, I don't think it would be a case that his face didn't fit, as it does in English cricket, as it does in cricket clubs and cricket teams around the world. That It's a funny little, little environment. But balance, for whatever reason, they have decided that balance doesn't quite have the technique or temperament or adaptability uh, or overall package to crack test cricket and to it and to flourish in test cricket now i can understand why if we do look at the numbers balance has a case but they don't really work like that and we don't see what it's like in a dressing room we don't see what what's being said on a day-to-day minute to minute basis we don't see how players are evolving or or reaching a ceiling we don't really see that we don't see what's happening in at the net we don't we're not privy to conversations in selection meetings and so on for whatever reason they've decided that balance who's now 30 odd anyway uh did okay without doing great in test cricket uh and that's and that door appears to be shut now i don't personally have a problem with that if i'm looking at it from a neutral perspective i don't have a problem with that um i can understand why those who are in favor of balance will have a problem with it because the numbers can be persuasive i think it's not just the numbers of balance i think if you look at his three stints in the england team the second stint basically should never have happened there is an argument that in his, he was out of form he was out he was, ba- he was picked when he was out of form for yorkshire uh and his uh, and he, he was struggling in his first season back in the county championship 
after being dropped, which is something that we've seen with a lot of England players recently. Mm. Um, in 2015, when he was dropped, he scored a really crucial at, at 60 in the Cardiff Test match. He was dropped two tests later. Understandably, because Johnny Bairstow was scoring a million young runs for Yorkshire, so Bairstow basically had to come into the team. But mm-hmm. there was a as a decision to be made between best uh, between balance and bell they went for balance understandably so so you can look at specific bits of his career where you're like he probably should have got a longer run there and he's been unlucky when he has played for england so i think mm-hmm. the the balance debate is 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 a difficult one um but i'm sure we'll come to it later uh with, when ben when ben's back on the show i'm sure um so oh, what one of the one of one of the results of having so little cricket in this test match means that pakistan can almost definitely play all their quicks in their next test match. There's no need to rest anyone. Um, do you think England will feel the same seam attack for the third test of the series? Well, you feel like there's there's no real reason to... Well, you can't you can't say, oh, we're resting someone when you've barely played. Um, but I, I mean, <laughs> it'd, be qu- it'd be quite a shame if Mark Wood only plays one test this summer. Um, he's almost been sort of forgotten about so if if I was going to make a change I would quite like to see Mark would get another test um but at the same I, I, time I guess the thinking though is is that Archer will now have had a longer rest mm. so okay not much happened in the second test but what did happen is that those who had played the previous test and the previous test before that would have had an extra week now to recuperate and recover and so on and so but, on but Rui did say a big reason for the selection was Curran's batting uh, and as we get nearer to the end of a test series with England one up are they going to want to weaken their batting at that stage it would be Archer, my guess is that they're going with the same Archer team Curran yeah. is the obvious change if they were to make one but I, I reckon they'll stick with the same team nice that was simple um, <laughs> we're five tests into the summer which is interesting because that's Don Best has now played five tests he's played all five which is the same number of tests that England's frontline spinners have played in the last two summers and I think it's just interesting comparing the numbers between the three because it's Three, simmers, three different spinners for, for three different summers. In 2018, Adil Rashid took 10 wickets at 31, strike rate of 52. In 2019, Jack Leach took 12 wickets at 28, strike rate of 52. In 2020, Don Best has taken seven wickets at 46, strike rate of 83. I think the main takeaway from that is actually how little spinners have bowled for England in home tests recently. With England's vast reserves of seam bowling options, is there an argument to, to use either an all-seam attack in most home tests or use a more attacking spinner than Bess. Maybe someone like Adil Rashid who, if fit, a lot more people now have kind of been remembering how effective he was against India and how decently he's actually done in his test career when he's got his opportunities. The Rashid thing feels a bit of a red herring to me. I mean, he's had persistent shoulder problems. I think he hasn't really shown a huge desire to want to play Red Bull cricket, which I can completely understand. Uh, with the tour of India coming up, I can absolutely see the temptation to go back to him for, for kind of specialist tours, as it were. To think about him coming back as England's long-term spin option to play test matches in England when he might not even bowl in a test match, I, I think is a bit of a waste of time, really. I, I wouldn't. I saw Vaughan... Was it, hang on, no, sorry, Vaughan banging that drum the other day. But I just think... I don't think that takes into the whole situation into account. Um, whether Leach should come in and have a go instead of Bess is is worth considering. Personally, I'd stick with Bess for another test. I don't think he's actually bowled enough. You gave the numbers there, but how many overs has he bowled? To, About the same as the, the other two. Has he? Yeah, okay. So I thought he'd have bowled a few fewer than that. Um, I would give him another test. The thing is going to be, there is so, there is very little to choose between them at the moment, it seems. Um India will be a really good test to see which spinner can put their hands mm. up and potentially win a test match out there. I think, I think on Rashid, I think it's more like if 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 a spinner doesn't bowl that much in England, they're not really doing the containing role. So you might as well have an attacking spinner and also looking at England's problems of getting tail end wickets. From the team's point of view, I'm not sure Rashid is going to necessarily fancy that gig of turning up and like we might we might give you a couple of overs to get the last two out. I, I think if he's thinking about preserving his career, possibly playing more T20 franchise stuff, which he hasn't done a, a huge amount of, I, I kind of think we're just barking up the wrong tree here. It's unfortunate that Parkinson injured himself and therefore hasn't played for Lancashire. Uh, I mean, the last overseas game, albeit it was a, it was a warm-up game, but the last overseas game they played, he took four for, for not many and apparently bowled really well on a senior tour of the subcontinent. Uh, I believe he'll be fit for 
well, I mean, six months away, isn't it? So I'm sure he'll be fit. Uh, I think I tend to agree with Joe on, on Rashid. I don't think they've given up hope on him. There was a story in the Telegraph this morning or maybe yesterday that, and, and you know, I think it was Nick Holt, so it, it will be pretty well uh, well researched uh, and authoritative. And, and, you know, Ed Smith brought him in in the first place. He certainly didn't disgrace himself, as you say. You know, 10 wickets in England against India that summer. It was pretty good. And took a five for in the third test against Sri Lanka when he was first brought back into the side. So they haven't given up hope, but he does seem slightly indifferent to to, to the option. Whereas Parkinson, who's raw, sure. But if they are looking to play two spinners, um, then there is definitely a case to play an attacking spinner, a fantasy spinner along t- alongside a more kind of prosaic one like like Bess or Leach. With with Rashid, some of it comes down to what England are prioritising over the next few years. And we've got two T20 World Cups in, in consecutive years, haven't we? So if England want to have a proper run at both of those, Rashid is, is going to be crucial uh, and potentially playing a couple of test matches here and there, trying to get trying to get his red ball leg spin. It's, we can't just throw him a red ball and say, go ahead and bowl brilliantly, just bowl that side out. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's a really tough gig. And I think, I think it feels right. I think, Parkinson was considered good enough to be picked for the England test team over the winter. I can't say he's done anything that should change that in the time since. He might not have been the kind of finished article, but that's absolutely understood. I I guess they'll be able to tour somewhere before the India series as well. They'll certainly have a few weeks, I would imagine, somewhere to acclimatise. There'll there'll be some warm-up games. He's got to go on that tour, hasn't he? And then you make a call on that based on the warm-up games, whether he's ready to play a test match. And if he isn't, that's not the end of the world either. That's just another tour that a very young leg spinner who's barely played first-class cricket has got some experience under his belt. Yeah. Mm. Looking ahead to the upcoming Ashes tour, though, it is interesting seeing how badly spinners have done in Australia. And I wonder if an all-seam attack is is a viable option there as well. I mean, just looking in the last 10 years, these are the spinners with the most wickets, the touring spinners with the most wickets in Australia. Ashwin's got 27 wickets at 48. Swan, 22 wickets at 52. Huh. Harath, 12 wickets at 34, which is the best, basically. Yassishar, 12 wickets at 89. Danish Canaria, 9 wickets at 46. And Mark Craig, 8 wickets at 64. Yeah, and Matt so Bowie Nally, 100 and something. It's, a, it's wicket. 105 wickets at 115. Yeah, it's where finger spinners go to die, Australia. And yeah. I kind of like that about Australia. They like fast bowlers and wrist spinners and nothing in between. Mm. Well, <laughs> did you not just hear Yassishar's numbers? <laughs> I, yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, Finally, on on England, um, Dylan Jones, aged eight, has sent in his first choice England team, which I, I think is pretty good and quite exciting. Rory Burns, Dom Sibley, Ollie Pope at three, Joe Root, Ben Stokes, Josh Butler, Moeen, Chris Wokes, Joffrey Archer, Stuart Broad, and Jimmy Anderson. Solid um, that by that Dylan. Is, that, exciting team. And actually, team. I was going to say in the, in the Crawley topic, not to go back to that, I think that might be the pressure that comes most for Crawley, that, that Pope will, the energy to put Pope up the order. Um, so I think Dylan's spot on there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the uh, voice of the next generation. Absolutely. Uh, before you we didn't get that, it's not a problem. Before we before we go onto the onto, onto the Willis, um, Cricket Captain 2020 is out now on iOS, Android, PC, and Mac. Cricket Captain is unrivaled in cricket management simulation, and Cricket Captain 2020 improves the series once again. Put your tactical expertise to the test in the number one cricket management game on the planet. Features an improved match engine, the 100 ball competition and rain delays in one day matches. The PC version is 10% off on Steam exclusively from childishthings.com. Anyway, the Willis. We're recording this show on the fourth morning of the third round of games. Uh, I'll quickly run through some performances of note so far. You're going to do a wazzy macram, just run through. Yeah. <laughs> Darren Milan scored a first career double time for Yorkshire in their top of the table clash against Derbyshire. Ben Slater scored his second hundred of the summer against Lancashire, one alone for Leicester, now one at not. Just on Slater, so big hundred, pair, big, big hundred. hundred. Yeah, yeah. Um, Knotts need 14 wickets in the last day to register their first first-class win in a very long time in that one. Sorry struggles continue. They were bowled out for 172 against Hampshire. Joe Denley is currently 17, not out overnight for Kent against Middlesex in his first county appearance of the season. But to be honest, most games after the weather we've had look to be heading for draws, except for Somerset. Warwickshire um, were bowled out for 121 in their first innings. Then Somerset blasted 413 in theirs. And now have Warwickshire 104 for 600 for Stephen Davies and Jamie Overton with the first career First class 100. His form this season has been totally ridiculous since he announced his move to Surrey for next season. He averages 40 with a bat and 13 with the ball so far. So that 
probable win for Somerset is absolutely huge given the format of this competition where the, the two group winners with the most points qualify. So one group winner won't qualify for the final. Um, so getting a win when no one else is winning is massive. Um, on county cricket, there's an interesting story in the Telegraph this week from Tim Wigmore. Long story short, according to his report, there are a number of possible changes under consideration at the moment for county cricket, which include adopting a variant of the regional format of the Bob Willis Trophy model as a replacement for the two-division model for the county championship, um, creating a new 32-team domestic 50-over competition, including a number of the national counties, formerly known as the minor counties, a reduction in the number of professional cricketers in the game and moving away from 12-month-a-year contracts for domestic players, and the long-term future of 18 counties playing first-class game and the possibility of some moving to just playing limited over cricket in the years ahead. Um, lots of interesting stuff there, uh, and a lot of it sounds like we're not that close to anything actually being announced. But um, specifically on the on the model of uh, what the first-class season looks like, Phil, what, what, what would you like to see the first-class season look like from 2021 and beyond? Uh, the... The virus hastens change, it seems, um, in all kinds of walks of life. And and this may be opening up English cricket to adaptations that have probably, probably been talked about for a few years now. Joe and I and, and Lizzie uh, Ammon as well wrote about this in the upcoming magazine. Uh, and Joe was more equivocal about it but i i essentially regurgitated what i've said i think on on this show before that i i think the 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 th- three groups of six ten game ten four day games uh positioned in the right time during the summer and given the primacy that it needs is actually a more appealing option than the rather uh bloated 14 game system that we have now when a number of those games are squeezed into the first few weeks in April um, you would get greater time between these four day games for rest training preparation uh, bowlers would be fitter for longer they would be able to maintain that intensity for longer I think batsmen would also uh, be hungrier it would ape the Australian model where they have six teams and there's a good couple of week gap between each game. And so each game carries its own identity and its own intensity and so on. Um, there are logistical elements around it, sure. But I think, personally, I think there would be fewer um, kind of empty games. You get quite a few, especially in, in the second division. I know they've tried to rectify that with the number of teams that are going up uh, of late. And that's a positive move. But I think... I think it, Three groups of six with four-day semi-finals. You know the three group winners and, a, and the best runner-up, and then a even a five-day final in late August at Lords. A real showpiece game of cricket. Uh, I can see the value of that model, not least for some of the smaller counties for whom putting on a four-day game is a lost leader week after week after week. And as we see the financial constraints in English cricket becoming ever more apparent. And as you see uh, the difficulties that counties are experiencing getting players back off furlough as well, I can understand why these conversations are coming through. Um, as you say rightly, I think it, I think change will be glacial. I don't think 2021 we will see, unless there is a dramatic second spike and we are forced to replicate next summer what we're having this summer, I think... If that doesn't happen, then I think we'll revert back to the, the two count, the two division model, and I think that will apply for a year or two. But I think there is an air of inevitability about this. I think the number of four-day games will be reduced in time, and I think this is probably the best way to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in favour of a three-division split, uh, but I wouldn't do it along regional lines. I think it would get very samey. I think for players, playing the same players every season, for fans, teams playing the same teams... Um, I think in some groups there might be leagues within leagues. So the North Division, for instance, you've got Yorkshire, Lanx, Notts, who haven't had a good time, but three big counties, Test Grounds, and then uh, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, Durham. You could potentially end up having a kind of three and three, which wouldn't be great. Top of the table, Derbyshire, though. I know, I know, I knew you were going to say that. Um, so so I would, I would rather have 
effectively a Premier League Championship, League One, one up, one down each season. So you get some movement, but not too much. I think two from six would be too many. Uh, and then effectively your Premier League, I would be tempted to have still, I love the idea of a Lord's Final. So potentially you have the team who comes first going straight to that Lord's Final, then second and third have a semi-final and then a big final at Lord's. And I think that would give uh, enough jeopardy and enough games for it to to really work. Um, sure, you'd, the worry would be League One would become really not a very good standard of cricket. But the reality is that that's kind of happening anyway. I don't think it'd be any worse. And one out of six to get up each year, I mean, that that's that's not unmanageable for a lot of these uh, smaller clubs. And you've uh, seen some of the bigger clubs be in the bottom six of Division Two recently as well. So, absolutely. So, so I'm I'm very much in favour of that. I, the one thing said so, um, in Tim Wigmore's uh, very interesting piece is definitely worth checking out. Um, he refers to a benefit of having the regionalised structure is is travel costs being limited, which obviously the way I'm describing wouldn't have. But if we're getting to a point where counties can't even afford to travel to play each other, then I mean we're in real real trouble. So I mean. I, so, so if we get to that point, then I think we'll start losing counties anyway, which I really hope doesn't happen. Um, but I think this could energize, as, as Phil says, 2021, it's not going to happen for that. But I think this could energize the county championship in, a, in the next couple of years. Tar, you had a fascinating interview with Azim Rafiq recently. Uh, yeah, um, Azim is someone whose career I've followed quite closely, um, just because um, I just find his interest, his story has been really interesting from from day one. Um you know, uh, moved over here uh, as a kid from Pakistan, um, captain England on the 15s, on the 19s, the, the side that had Stokes, Root, uh, Vince, uh, Butler. Um, and he's now sort of out of county cricket for, for a second time. And he's in, and he's only 29, captain Yorkshire at 21. I mean, you you know, it's a sign of someone who's, who's, who's an impressive young man. Um, and just a, just a month ago, I, I read that he'd he'd opened a, his own business and you know was was currently out of the professional game. Um, so I interviewed him, and you know he's had a rough few years, um, some personal tragedy. Um, you know has been out of was released by why by Yorkshire in 2018, and uh, yeah, I've interviewed him, and we've talked about you know his career and just <laughs> the bumpy the bumpiness of it all, and um, just some pretty interesting insights into into what he's gone through over the last few years who's been there for him um Adil Rashid is a, is a really close friend who who he keeps in touch with and um, and what he went through as a British Asian yeah of well. course um you know talks about his experiences as a British Asian um in in dressing rooms and um some pretty you know I was I was really taken aback by some of the stuff he he told me so uh um yeah, I guess just happy to to get that story out as well. Mm. I mean, he he speaks quite openly about some pretty ugly incidents. Yeah, um, and it was sort of one of the few times I've been interviewing someone and sort of um, he finished speaking and I didn't really re- really know what to say. Um, I get that all the time. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's not beat around the bush. I mean, he said he played at some point in his career under an openly racist captain. And at one point when he was playing for Yorkshire with Adil Rashid, Navid Al-Hassan and Ajmal Shazad, there was a comment made by a, a teammate at the time that there was too many of them and that that, that needed to be looked at. Um, and so these are stopping, stopping yourself in the tracks kind of statements and, and they are carrying echoes, of course, from other things that we've heard over the last few months. It's a brilliant piece of work. Um, it, an extended piece on on cricket in 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 Yorkshire appears in the upcoming magazine uh, of which Azim's story is a part of that um, that one's out this week yes I believe mm. but yeah it's an excellent superb and important piece of work and the, the thing that comes through for me in that interview as well is someone who's been beaten up by the game and and by life in general and and we speak to a lot of former cricketers uh who are quite bitter about the game with a lot less reason than Rafiq has to be bitter about the game and yet he's still optimistic. He still wants that county contract. He still says he wants to be a coach. Uh, he still wants to be involved in the game. Um, and I remember watching him for Yorkshire in T20 when he came back for a second time. And I thought at that point he could he could be a, an international spinner still at this at this stage, certainly yeah. in, the, in the shortest format. I was surprised Yorkshire let him go when they did. So hopefully there's a county out there that can um, 
can give him a contract. Yeah, actually, when when he came back in in 2016 and 2017, his his white ball record was excellent. You know, up there as probably one of the best white ball spinners in the country, mm. um, and just had a really tough year in 2018. For you know, had a really sad personal loss, um, and so yeah, I mean, he's still just 29, and he's a spinner, so you hope that there's there's still a future for him. Mm. Um, Joe's Phil mentioned there's a new magazine out this week. What's is, it? Yes. What, what's in it? Um, it is uh, a piece by Lawrence Booth, uh, Wisdom Almanac editor, of course. Uh, on Joe Root is the cover story. Um, he's basically looking at Root's emerging captaincy and whether he can shoulder responsibility of being captain and go on to be the best batsman he can possibly be. Can he be an all-time world great batsman or will he merely be remembered as an all-time England great? Uh, Lawrence makes the point that on stats, we all know his conversion rate isn't what it would like to be, but in terms of average, in terms of passing 50, you can make a case that he's England's best batsman of the last half century. And yet still, there's always that feeling with Root, particularly over the last couple of years, is he really fulfilling his potential? Partly because he, he looks so good when he's scoring those 30s, 40s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and Lawrence leans on some uh, useful voices in this. He speaks to uh, Nasser Hussein, David Gower, who obviously have both had to juggle captaincy and, and run scoring before, uh, and David Lloyd as well, to talk about where Root is, where he can go from here, and, and whether he can achieve all that he wants to while still being England captain. Uh, and Lawrence says basically it's over to Root now to, to show that he can. But, you know, we're only one bad series away from the argument coming back. Should we just let Root get on with batting and let someone else do do the captaincy? Just read this morning... Um... Since Butler came into the side, he averages better than Root in home conditions over the last two years. Really? Butler averages 36, Root 34 since the start of 2018 in England. There you go. Yeah, Just yeah. on the yeah. shell. On, <laughs> on that bombshell. Um, yeah. um, but there's there's more than just Joe Root in the magazine. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Um, there loads, is loads of stuff. There is. We've got... Um, a uh, pair of features uh, marking Pakistan's tour over here. So I did one of them. Phil takes us back to 1992 and a the kind of combustible series that ended up, well, slanging match ended up in the in the high court there. Wild times, great tour, great summer that one. And John Stern. That's a great little teaser, isn't it? <laughs> John Stern looks at uh, well the emergence of Nasim Shah and Shaheen Shah Afridi as the latest from the Pakistan pace factory. How do they keep producing them? Where do they come from uh, and how do they kind of cultivate these these talents? That's really interesting. He's Brilliant piece, that. Loads of people involved in um, Pakistan coaching to figure that out. And then also, we've got the T20 Blast, which we obviously haven't quite got to talk about in the podcast yet because we're in the meat of the Bob Willis trophy. But as we say on the cover, the Blast has never been more important to, to English cricket. The, the year that it was meant to kind of just slip to one side and let the 100 take over... Um, suddenly it's going to be front and centre with pretty much nothing else on for a month uh, in terms of domestic men's cricket. Um, so we preview all 18 counties um, as best we can. There's a few TBCs, counties trying to work out who's captain their side. It feels a bit like a kind of university second eleven at this stage. But um, uh, that was really, um, well, it's always great to cover county cricket in that depth. And another- can, I, can I just make a shout out for Tim Key's Golden Summer? So Tim Key, poet, comedian writer you can but it's going in the issue after this right? oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's good though yeah it is yeah yeah, yeah. bide your time for that one folks phil always <laughs> one step ahead of the game is that um and another shout out for um for james wallace jim's piece on uh inspired by the uh, opinion dividing impact of dom sibley at the top of england's batting order looking more broadly at, at stonewallers and their their role and reputation and, and the respect or lack of respect they're afforded. So there's loads in there. Ishigua oh, yeah. interview as well. I went down to Southampton, caused a diplomatic incident um, <laughs> outside the Aegeus Bowl Hotel uh, and interviewed her while sitting on a curb in the car park. The glamour uh, of this job, Phil. Oh, tell yeah. me about it. Uh, but that went in there. Um, she, you know, she's great value and uh, increasingly central to English, English cricket story, you know, doing great work with the BBC. So... So I went down, had a chat with her um, and other things that are not just appearing this month, but also maybe next month and the month after. Excellent. Uh, and, and finally, the Caribbean Premier League begins tonight. Um, we'll talk about it 
more over the coming weeks once it actually starts. But you might cu- have to warn me. A couple of a couple of pointers from me. Watch out for Naeem Young and Jaden Seals. I saw them both at the Under-19 World Cup. Young is just like a young Andrew Russell, really. Hits the ball hard, bowls quick. And Jaden Seals is a brilliant young quick. So Up the souks, as ever, up the souks. <laughs> I love a Yaz pointer. Just slips them in, doesn't he? Yeah. Not overblown, but just keep yeah. an eye just out. keep and an they, eye they, they usually yeah. do pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and just on this, have you seen a clip doing the rounds... Uh, that references the Caribbean Premier League from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? No. No. Is, so, it, is it Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Uh, I think, yeah, it is, it is, yeah. Okay. So early, early this year, so Jeremy Clarkson hosts Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. So, Jeremy yeah, Clarkson as host, you'd hate it. Yeah. Don't watch it. <laughs> oh, God. Well, anyway, Jeremy Clarkson is, is the new host and he asks a contestant when they're only on £1,000, um, what are you going to do with the money, whatever. And this uh, woman who's, probably in her 40s, says that she got into cricket because of the 92 World Cup. I hope and she's she, not 32 years old. But if she, she got into cricket f- through the 92 World Cup, she has to be at least a certain age. Okay, right. So fair I'm enough. basing it on that, not appearances fair enough, at all. Fair enough, fair at all. enough, fair enough. Um, she, she says, though, that uh, she got into cricket through the 92 World Cup, um, but she works in hospitality. So the cricket that she and her partner watch most is the Caribbean Premier League and Lovely. if she wins lots of money she'd love to go over there and watch it uh, she won 125k get in uh, so unfortunately she obviously can't go this year <laughs> but uh, I really hope that she enjoys the start of the Caribbean <laughs> Premier League now and hopes uh, I really hope that she can go out there next year that's lovely um, I feel I feel like you're rounding up. I just want to make a quick nod to uh, the lad who was in the nets at Southwark Park last week next to next to us um, who recognised my voice uh, from this show and said some lovely things about about the show uh, and how it helped him during lockdown and all of that. Didn't catch the bloke's name, but he was he was a star and a fine cricketer as well. Uh, and I just I want to say thanks to the bloke for. For, for perking us up that evening and digging into the to the tail enders show as well, which I thought was a nice little touch. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Anyway, thanks guys. This has been the Wizard Creek Willie podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends if you're feeling especially nice, why not leave us a kind review on the podcast app? Cheers. Podcast Network.